Hi, I'm John Anarino, author, photographer, and adventurer. My new book is America's Outback, and you're listening to the great program, The Soul of Life. Stay tuned. Today I speak with Bessel van der Kolk, author of The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma, about his trailblazing work educating a generation of doctors and therapists about how to heal from trauma. A trauma is something that changes you, that overwhelms you and leaves you speechless, horrified, paralyzed, enraged, out of it, collapsed. Oh my God, nothing you can do. Huh? I wanted to ask Bessel if he thinks the term trauma has become inflated and overused. There's a New York Times article where they interviewed me about Prince Harry and Andrew Merkel. And I said, no, that's not really a trauma. It sucks. Of course, it's very sad, but that's life. Vanderkolk tells the story of playing a part in the creation of the post-traumatic stress diagnosis and how it originally focused only on combat stress completely missing the far more prevalent and more destructive traumas that take place in families. In the late 1970s, a whole group of us created this diagnosis called PTSD because we were working with Vietnam veterans. I asked him to offer alternatives to the widespread but woefully imprecise diagnostic terms like narcissism, borderline personality disorder, or antisocial personality disorder, and we discussed our mutual distaste for the DSM the diagnostic manual used by psychiatrists and licensed professionals. It's embarrassing, and we should be embarrassed as a profession. We didn't know about child abuse. We didn't know about domestic violence. We didn't know about rape. And in retrospect, it's just, I'm just stunned. Mm. We could be so ignorant. Even though Bessel contributed to the development of the DSM versions 3 and 4, he rails against how using labels interferes with genuine observation and connection to each person. We are part of very corrupt professions. And then when you start giving people labels on the basis of what you can charge an insurance company, right. you really have lost your soul in that We discuss his proposal of a more precise replacement for the PTSD diagnosis called developmental trauma disorder. Because we don't treat trauma. Right? We treat the imprint of traumatic experience. And we dive into breakthrough treatments like psychedelics. People went very deep into very dark stuff, but they were able to process it. And, come out of it. and the often overlooked but highly promising use of neurofeedback. Doctors make more money giving people drugs than, than a complicated thing like neurofeedback. Using a person's own brain waves to control a video game that trains the brain to correct nervous system dysregulation that occurs as a result of abuse, neglect, or unprocessed trauma. But the most important public health issue is the hundreds of thousands of kids who are come from abusive and neglectful families who cannot learn in school because they are too freaked out, upset, dysregulated to make friends or to, to learn. And I think the greatest contribution is to develop uh, an intensive neurofeedback program that goes to many people. And we're actually doing that. I also asked Bessel about his last conversation with the late Rich Simon, whose suicide in November of 2020 rocked many of us in the mental health professions. I have never yelled at anybody, or nobody's ever yelled at me professionally, the way that Rich and I yelled at each other. Rich, to my mind, was also 
an example of a pilgrim that all of us become if we try to heal and we try various things. And of course, it's devastating that it didn't work for him. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is episode two of season three, Bessel van der Kolk and The Body Keeps the Score. Boy, you ask me all these crotchety evoking. <laughs> I love me crotchety, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, I won't. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Have you ever been in a position where you know that you or your family member really needs emotional support or marriage enrichment, but you find out how expensive it is to get access to high-quality, out-of-network professionals? Well, I've created the Soul of Life community just for this. At community.souloflifeshow.com, you can join for free and be part of a network of caring and supportive people having conversations that can bring healing to your soul. It's there that you'll find access to psychoeducational courses to deal with stress, anxiety, and relationship conflict. For example, right now I'm offering a seven-week immersive course for couples called Mindful Marriage that walks people through a mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum I designed that really gives couples in conflict a map towards stability, trust, and deeper intimacy. Just go to community.souloflifeshow.com, check out the courses, and join for free to be part of the Soul of Life community of learners and soul seekers. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk is a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine and president of the Trauma Research Foundation in Brookline, Massachusetts. Since the 1970s, his research has been in the area of post-traumatic stress. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Body Keeps the Score, a widely renowned book that came out in 2014, subtitled Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. It explores the extreme disconnection from the body that so many people with histories of trauma and neglect experience and the most effective paths to recovery by studying three main areas of research. Neuroscience, which deals with how mental processes function within the brain. Developmental psychopathology, concerned with how painful experiences impact the development of mind and brain. And interpersonal neurobiology, which examines how our own behavior affects the emotional and neurobiological states of those close to us. Bessel is perhaps best known for the legacy of his work establishing the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, a congressionally mandated initiative that now funds approximately 150 centers specializing in developing effective treatment interventions and helping establish the Trauma Center, now called the Trauma Research Foundation, in Boston. That is a world-renowned center for trauma research in brain science. It's really my privilege, Dr. Vander Kolk, to welcome you to the Soul of Life. How are you today? Good to be here. Thank you. I'm good. 
It's great to speak with you. And um, I, I'm eager to talk about this subject. You know, trauma has been your legacy and your, your life's work. Why, why, why is it it's so important? I think a lot of people know you in, in our field. For, for some people who may be listening and aren't familiar with your work, can you maybe start from the beginning about why speaking about trauma is so important? And then on the other side of that, I, I want to ask you why you've referred recently to trauma being an inflated term. Oh, you've heard that. Yeah, yeah, trauma has sort of become a catch-all term. Uh, Like, uh, there was a New York Times article where they interviewed me about uh, the uh, Prince Harry and uh, Andrew Merkel uh, and the royal family. And I said, no, that's not really a trauma. That is sort of a dysfunctional family issue. Uh, You know, Dysfunctional families are everywhere. And if you're royal, it becomes, makes the news. If you're not royal, you just suffer with it, and it sucks. But the thing is, as happens with them, for example, is you can extricate yourself. And when you extricate yourself, you have a loss, of course, it's very sad. And, and you know, But that's life. You know, life is filled with losses and filled with decisions, and um, that you have a mind for it to deal with that. That is not a trauma. That is just life, which is much more complicated than, than people like to believe it is. Uh, a trauma is something that changes you, that overwhelms you and leaves you speechless, horrified, paralyzed, enraged, uh, out of it, collapsed, without, oh my God, and there's like nothing you can do. Huh? And that is really what we're studying here is, uh, is that an experience like that doesn't get digested, doesn't get metabolized, doesn't get taken care of. And since for a very long time, it turns out, uh, people have noticed that if you get traumatized, you get stuck and you keep going, you keep behaving as if it's still happening, you keep acting, you keep feeling like it. Your hormones keep going the same way, and head is getting stuck. And then, no matter how how welcoming the world may be after that, that you keep sort of going back there. That is trauma. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm just still stunned, and I'm always letting people ask me about this. Is so in the late 1970s, a whole group of us created this diagnosis called PTSD because we were working with Vietnam veterans. Um, and so we got a nice little definition, mainly based on the work of Abe Gardner, who was a psychiatrist who was analyzed by Sigmund Freud, who worked with fervor war veterans, and who in 1941 wrote a book called The Traumatic Neurosis of War, where he said, this is a physioneurosis, and the body keeps reliving it. I'm not the first person to notice that. Um, and he says, and once people got traumatized, it keeps coming back. So he wrote a book in 1941, as America was about to go to the Second World War. And that book was, of course, way out of print. But we dug that book up, and that became, aside from Harry um, um, Marty Horowitz's book, Stress Response Syndrome, that became our guide to the definition. When we defined it originally, we said, uh, this is about events outside of the normal human experience. It's a, an extraordinary event. Uh, and that really reflects on how, um, how 
was, I'd like to, let me just use a blunt term, how stupid we were, um, because we didn't know about child abuse. We didn't know about domestic violence. We didn't know about rape. And in retrospect, it's just, I'm just stunned. Mm. We could be so ignorant that we didn't know how widespread child abuse was. And we didn't mm. know that domestic violence is a big thing. There were a few people who paid some attention to it, but by and large, psychology and psychiatry has completely ignored the, the fact that reality can just get the better of you. The, the way you've described trauma has changed our field. Maybe we can speak about this radical, which was really paradigm shift from the, the, the disease model of treating people. And let's, if we can, let's talk about the DSM and what, what your thoughts are about that. Do we have to? <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I mean, I would rather, rather just throw it in the trash can. Um, you know, it's, it's really, it's a, it's, it's embarrassing, and we should be embarrassed as a profession, not only psychiatry, but social workers and psychologists also, that, uh, you know, I was part of the people who put the original DSM-3 together, you know, in, in the minor role, and then quite involved in DSM-4. The origin of this that, is that uh, people had invented drugs, and these drugs seem to make a difference in schizophrenia and depression and various things, and so... Um, no, we love to, to, to attach ourselves to very simplistic notions about the mind. Uh, and so we have these drugs, and we also, oh my God, this is going to be the end of mental illness. All we need to do is to find the right drug for the right condition, and then we'll drive off in the sunset. And so we thought, now, before we can study these drugs, we need to have diagnoses. And we sort of did a sort of a temporary scaffolding of list of symptoms that seem to belong together. And one of them became depression, one of them became schizophrenia, one of them became other things. But there were lists of symptoms put together by people in smoke-filled rooms, because still, people still smoked in those days. It was not on the basis of science, but it was a good stab at how we should organize our drug research. And then, in the, so in the opening of DSM-3, it says, you know, these are very rough categories. They're not really very well scientifically grounded, and they should, they're too, too broad and too, uh, too, too rough to ever be used for forensic or insurance purposes. Preamble of DSM 3. That's been thrown out the window. Appears in DSM 4, and then people start believing that these lists of symptoms that we put together are actually human conditions. They aren't. Uh, and it's so important to, uh, to realize there's a distinction there. These are just an attempt. They were an attempt. They're not the real person. But the other thing is that anybody who buys into this is, is a, you know, is an enabler of a system that's really very bad. Uh, maybe how do you make a diagnosis right now? Most clinicians don't make diagnosis. They, they don't really think, What's wrong here? What's wrong with that? And the, what is working? What is working? Mm. And they, they're not, you know, as, you, as a physician, you really learn to make diagnosis. Psychologists, uh, social workers don't make diagnosis. They give people labels. Mm. What, what labels do they give people? Primarily in order to get reimbursed by insurance companies. We, you know, we are part of very corrupt professions. 
And then when you start people giving people labels on the basis of what you can charge an insurance company, you right. really have lost your soul in that way. Something's wrong, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it, I, I think there should be much more of a serious discussion about the integrity of ourselves of going along with our current insurance-based DSM-type uh, setup. Would, would you say that we have the same challenge of thinking of this as like religious thinking, that it's almost like a, there's sort of a sort of a, a religion that we have to overcome in our profession, and, and we can also talk about CBT and a, a analysis. You're a former right. uh, analysis. We should talk well, about that. Well, you should catch me on it <laughs> about some very grouchy subjects. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. These the and, and let me underscore maybe put the frame around this for people listening that the the importance of this. I think this is so important that we touch this, Bessel. That um, the way we talk about what is happening inside of us and between us changes Absolutely. what is happening inside of us and between us. And, I'm, and this is, this is your work. And, and of course, this is what I teach and what you teach. Yeah. So this is why we get passionate about these things, I think. But, but, but it's a, it's a real issue. And I see it. You now we all suffer it from, to some degree and that most clinicians I know, or many clinicians I don't want to quantify it. <laughs> are more committed to the particular doctrine they belong to than making sure that the patient is going to be okay. So people say, I'm a psychoanalyst, or I'm an EMDR therapist, or I'm a somatic experiencing therapist. And I go, no, no, actually, you are a person who has psychoanalysis in his toolbox, or you have yes. EMDR in your toolbox. Uh, but yes. I like to say, or all these things, you know, you don't go to a carpenter who's a hammer carpenter. Uh, uh, yeah, hammers are very good, as I saw, all the other stuff. But you need multiple modalities in order to build a house. And so it's very puzzling that therapists, actually since I'm memorial, have their primary loyalty to the school of thought that they come from, oftentimes more often than how do I get this patient better and what other tools do I need? I get a little vexed. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but you know, I, you know, I think sometimes as therapists, clinicians, we have sometimes trouble admitting that we get triggered. Of course, we get triggered, right? Um, so, I one of my one of my triggers, one of the things that triggers me is hearing people talk about these labels, especially personality, borderline personality disorder, or any of the personality disorders, so-called narcissism, antisocial. Can can you can you put your finger on what is so different about and what do you propose for people who uh, use those labels uh, as an, as an alternative. Why is it important to to have an, an alternative to those? Well, the alternative, I think, is to become true diagnosticians and to look at human functioning. The most common way in which people start their story with me: Oh, this is a uh, some woman somewhere in her forties or fifties, and she was sexually molested as a child. Let me tell you about her childhood sexual abuse. And they go, wait a second. Who is this person you're talking about? Mm, yeah. uh, and they, you know, the trauma story may or may not explain anything, but, you know, a lot of people who have been sexually molested are brilliant and well functioning, and some people are stuck in victimhood and paralysis. Um, so the issue of the, of the, the trauma doesn't really explain it. This person is stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and can we connect compassionately to that whole person? And the therapist is stuck yeah. by not being able to see, tell me, oh, she also wrote a book 
Oh, she also is the principal of the school that has helped hundreds of children. She also has been uh, a very difficult but effective mother in a way, or whatever. Yes. Uh, has yes. this whole person. Yeah. 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 It, it seems like that is part of what you're proposing in 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 your in your book. The body keeps the score. You you write about the proposal in the revision of a DSM, even though because we we do have to at least engage with this psychiatric manual, and you call for the um, development of a, a new term, developmental trauma disorder. Can you explain why you propose that? Yeah. Um, well, that's why we set up the National Traumatic Stress Network. It was very specifically in order, because it's all about politics. Huh? So what it happens is that uh, the VA, after initially saying, quote, letter to me, um, it has not been demonstrated that PTSD is relevant to the mission of the Veterans Administration, unquote. Whoa. Um, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> then the VA became this PTSD organization where everything became PTSD and they got all the money to do PTSD research. Not much has come out of that. A stunning amount of money has been pumped into it. And boy, you asked me all these Crotchety evoking. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they're good questions. Um, what would you like to talk about? Oh, I, I love being crotchety. You know, <laughs> let's just uh, keep going. Now. I think we all need to really, really seriously question ourselves. Like even what you say, treating trauma. I probably say that myself also, mm. but it's a lousy term because we don't treat trauma. Right? We treat the imprint of traumatic experience. Mm. Let's be precise. Let's let's hmm. let's really say this is what I see. It it almost feels as though, in, even the way we're talking about this, the way we're resonating, and you t- you mentioned this sort of you know this feels a little crotchety, and right. and yet when I see I see you describe this, there's almost a light vessel, and I want to just reflect this back to you that it's it feels it feels like to me that you want to dance with this. Well, I, I don't know if you know that, but actually, I dance with it. Like, I do this. Yes. <laughs> and that's what it feels. I can feel that with you. And I, I really respect that. And, and that, that, I hope that comes across to people listening. Some people are going to be watching this as well. But, um, you know, that we, we can, and let's just talk about depression for a moment. I shared with you before we started why I started this show because of my own struggle to, to wrap my mind around the label. Depression, which I think is such a lousy term as well. well what does a, it really say? A multifaceted issue. Yeah. And when you tell me you have been, you have been depressed or you're depressed, it uh, gives me some sense of, oh, he must be paralyzed. He must feel disconnected from other people. He must feel like life has very little meaning and some deadness inside. Um, that's a good beginning. Mm-hmm. But then the next question is, What's the context and how long, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Because different adaptation, different f- formation, it need very different treatment, of course. Right, right. I, I was, uh, you know, in my case, the presentation, the, the, the expression of this depression is what I would consider pernicious in that I have very highly adaptable parts of me, highly functioning, just, you know, similar to how we might speak to a friend or someone we know or, perhaps ourself, who, who drinks a lot of alcohol and says it's not really, doesn't cause a problem. If, if you drank that much, you'd pass out, but I can drink that much. Right. <laughs> um, so the, the way we function, it may not be visible 
to the, to the outside that we are feeling disconnected or lost. I've spoken about that feeling. Um, and at what level? I think that's a, that's a, such an interesting question. At what level? At a spiritual level? At a, at an existential level? At a physical level? I've talked about the paralysis I've felt in my body, the brain fog, which I <laughs> thought, you know, I told about 12 different doctors, no, you've got to find cancer. You've got to find pernicious anemia. You've got to find Lyme's disease. Please. It's got to be that. Right. <laughs> and yet when I do follow the path of curiosity and interest towards these symptoms, if we call that that, these expressions of, of, of information, <laughs> suffering perhaps, I do find resonance and I do find uh, it opens up. It opens up. But it's very important to find out for somebody not to treat you generically. Are you very inequipped and educated to try to figure out what the underlying issues are that get me in this position yeah. and not start telling me to straighten out my thinking so I don't I stop thinking these irrational thoughts. Yeah. I did it with my wife a lot, actually. I tried to put it out to her every way. She's always so grateful when, when I point out uh, the irrationality of her. I'm sure she'll, she'll, she'll listen to this. She'll oh, give it a thumbs up. She's great. <laughs> I, I can't believe the psychologists have sunk as low as to you can straighten out people's thinking by telling them not to think that way. Like it. I, I really do admire your, your book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's, I think it's a masterpiece. I think, um, my goodness, you deserve so much credit for that. 2014, I it came get out. All credit for it, so you don't need to add to it. <laughs> okay, all right, fine. <laughs> my head is getting big. big. <laughs> okay, fine. It's it's okay. It's an all right book. Um, yeah, it's not bad. It's not. It's not bad. Um, how has that changed your life? Um, you you've you've been in this career for quite a while, and you've now so and now you've got this book, but you've, you've written quite a bit before. How has this changed for you? Yeah, I'll tell you an anecdote. Um, I love the theater, and I also love the theater as as a treatment. And I think it's really useful for people to play different roles, to feel what it feels like to not inhabit yourself, but what it's like to inhabit somebody else. So as part of my um, love for theater, I did an advanced Shakespeare acting training. Mm -hmm. And... I played the role for a little part of, uh, of Richard II, who oh. says at one point, I wasted time, and then now does time waste me? And I started to cry. And my director said, why are you getting so upset? Did you waste your life? And I said, no, I certainly did not waste my life. <laughs> and that's the nice thing about writing a book like this. You don't get a sense, I wasted my life. I'm worried. The political events in America in the past few years uh, sometimes makes me think like we haven't accomplished anything. Had to to at this stage of the game, my interest in trauma is very much affected by the fact that I was born in 1943, that my father was in a German camp when I was born, that my early childhood's all death and destruction of the Second mm. World War because of fascism, and to now be at my age and see fascism return very similarly to how it happened back then. It's just a horrifying experience. Mm. But, mm. So, so reality really uh, gets in the way of my getting all chirpy about, isn't it wonderful that my book is doing so well? That makes sense. 
I want to ask you about Rich Simon. Uh, Rich, I spoke with his daughter, Sina, yeah. did a, did an episode with her a couple of weeks ago. And, and, uh, we were scheduled to record. This is back in no- November. I was scheduled to talk with Sina and she, she said, I'm sorry. My, my dad passed away. He yeah. took his life. And boy, what, what, you know, so for people who are, are not familiar with Rich Simon, a, a leader and orchestra conductor in our field of psychotherapy, of counseling, a promoter of, of uh, getting us together at every year for 40 years at these conferences in my backyard here in Washington, D.C. And he struggled with bipolar disorder. Some, a lot of people in the public did not know this, but his, his whole life was struggling with, even though he had the best treatment available to him through, through knowing all the people who are leading these sciences. Um, and Sina talked about the struggle, of course, for her, um, in her family, the turmoil of a suicide is especially grievous. The whole field, actually. Huh? The whole field. Is- we're all still, we're still all shaking, actually. Even though it's like, how long has it been now? Six months or so? November, yeah. You know, I talked to him fairly shortly before he died. And actually, I got him engaged in psychedelic therapies. Um, and... I'm actually now analyzing the results of our psychedelic studies. And they're really stunning. And so people go to run away again with saying, oh, psychedelic answer, studies, psychedelic study answer. I said, no, it didn't work for, for Rich, huh? um, even though it will help many other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the, the good thing about Rich is that I have never seen an outpouring of love and gratitude after Rich died, so I've seen from which. I mean, uh, I mean, people, including myself, are so profoundly grateful to him and inspired by him and feel the reality of his pain that in many ways it has been a very profound experience mm. for all of us and uh, uh, of both of the incredible generosity and creativity that people are uh, capable of and that which really embodies uh, also his uh, the complexity of his, his interactions professionally I have never yelled at anybody or nobody's ever yelled at me professionally the way that Rich and I yelled at each other at least <laughs> I'm a passionate guy and he would say terrible things to me and I'm a passionate guy I say terrible things to him <laughs> and then we'd kiss and make up and do great things together. And I think that's probably his relationship with many people. Um, but, you know, at the end, we do the best we can. And Rich certainly, boy, did Rich do the best he can. He tried. Yeah. And I knew how much he was suffering. And, but also, astounded me actually is that he promoted so many different people and so many different treatments. And when they talked about psychedelics, he said, you know, Bessel, I respect you. Um, I'll try it. And it didn't work for him. Mm-hmm. And so he, he also really uh, did another thing that I think all of us should do is we should practice on ourselves the treatments that we preach. Mm-hmm. And which did that. And when people say, we have found a treatment that's the answer or the treatment of choice, I cringe. No treatment is the treatment of choice. Mm-hmm. Treatment may help some people. 
And certainly in my book, I describe many treatments, including IFS, but certainly also EMDR and yoga and theater work that we do and neurofeedback uh, that can help a lot of people. But they won't help everybody. Right. And so, which to my mind was also uh, an example of a pilgrim that, that all of us become if we try to heal and we try various things. And of course, it's devastating that it didn't work for him. And it's, uh, I'm really glad to be able to, if you're doing this podcast, which is really a tribute to Mitch Simon, because he, am, he is us. Yeah. Except he was more talented than most of us. <laughs> he was a very bright light. Yeah. And as you said, very passionate. And, uh, and it, it has been touching for me to hear. I, I only knew him a little bit, just a fraction of what some people had a relationship with him. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. Your book takes the reader through lead, some of the leading, what you think are the leading interventions for trauma and for healing. Yeah. Creative interventions. EMDR is one of them. Eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Can you tell the story? Because this has become a very popular modality. And you can find people that will say, Oh my goodness, like I had this breakthrough and I, and we should talk about neurofeedback as well. But, um, can you tell the story of psychedelics? Psychedelics, Michael Mithofer. Um, I've done it. So I was PI, principal investigator of the Boston side of the latest, uh, MDMA study. And I'm just in the middle of the uh, analyzing the secondary data, the, the primary data, PTSD. Made the front page of the New York Times last week. What mm. I'm seeing is much more, much more exciting than what from the New York Times actually. Like, wow. Self-compassion, self-understanding, being able to put your experience into words, being able to understand other people's motivations, being able to, um, to look before you leap, being able to contemplate and develop new habits. Like, wow. Mm. No, like, I love EMDR, I love IFS, but what I see with the psychedelic research is like, holy shit. This yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, are you making a distinction between MDMA and psychedelics? Because MDMA is no, not no, a hallucinogen. The only thing we've studied is MDMA. Yeah. Uh, but it's all about getting out of your habitual mind frame. Yeah. And I think that's, of course, uh, hypnosis used to be a treatment of choice in mental health until about the time you were born, probably. Seventies, <laughs> really, uh, yeah, it really was a very, uh, and it's disappeared. And, yeah. and mental health is always about uh, helping people to access a different frame of mind, a new perspective on things, right. and that's certainly what psychedelics can do in a very profound way. They are not harmless substances. People, in, in our study, surprisingly, we didn't see a single bad side effect. And that's because we were so, created such a terrific context and people went very deep into very dark stuff, but they were able to process it and come out of it. But the context is terribly important. Huh? Um, but so, uh, so right now I'm really, really like blown away. Mm. I mean, this is going to be one of my last research papers. Hmm. I'm sure 
And it's going to be the best research paper in my life, actually. I'm sure it will be. It, it is, 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 is a groundbreaking topic. And we should probably say to people, because I, I read about this as people are talking about this online, they're hearing about the studies. They're hearing us talk about it. I did an interview with Dr. Michael Mithofer, who is also a P- lead PI. He's, he's, uh, he's sort of my boss in the brain. He was the guy. I mean, he got the FDA to come around. And I, people should read Acid Test. We talked about that, um, the yeah. book uh, that chronicles the serpentine relationship we have to drugs and controlled substances and, and the medicinal use of them in our culture, this sort of uh, demonization that we put on it. But the caution I wanted to raise with people listening to this is this is not a do-it-yourself thing. But, you know, this is not go out and get some ecstasy and give it a, give it a whirl. This is, you're, you put so much time into creating a therapeutic set. Yeah. And that affects, can you speak to that, how that affects? You oh, can have a really bad outcome yeah. with MDMA. You know, it's interesting that, uh, Vic Doblet, who really designed the study, who is the genius behind all of this, um, and his team were very much into, and as he did learn from Sam Groff, uh, that context is everything. And people have known that about psychedelics. Eh? And so if you go into hell, which trauma treatment is, you need to have some very powerful guys. <laughs> as Dante pointed out in Dante's Inferno already, you, know, you don't go into hell without somebody holding your hand. You know? And so it's very important to that the context. And then interestingly, uh, I was talking to Sue Carter, who's a friend and who is the world's foremost authority on oxytocin, who has done research that shows that uh, MDMA really enhances oxytocin secretion. and that probably is very powerful underlying factor that makes this treatment so effective because oxytocin is the love drug. And so it gives you the sense of self-compassion and allows you go to, to go to these very dark places uh, without getting to hate yourself, which is the usual experience. Huh? And, but Sue tells me that oxytocin uh, wears off after a while. And that it has which has a certain effect, but it depends on the context whether the oxytocin will work. So just the molecule doesn't just do it. You need to have the molecule happen at the right moment at the right time. And you can't keep doing it because mm-hmm. it just keeps running off at some point. I had some, somebody contact me about half a year ago, a very wealthy man who said, I've read your book. How can I help you? Mm-hmm. doesn't happen very often. I wish it happened more often. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> Because I have a lot of projects I'd love to do. <laughs> and I said, oh, the most important public health issue is the hundreds of thousands of kids who are come from abusive neg- neglectful families who cannot learn in school because they are too freaked out, upset, dysregulated to make friends or to, to learn. And I think the greatest contribution you can uh, give, give us is to develop uh, an intensive neurofeedback program that goes to many people. And we're actually doing this. So we're training people in New York and uh, Cleveland and in Western Massachusetts where I live now, training teams of people to do neurofeedback. Because, you know, these things take an enormous amount of uh, background effort, uh, commitment to, to develop. And so the neurofeedback is not a new field, um, but uh, nobody has ever gotten the money together to really do large-scale studies, or the energy, for that matter. And so uh, most people I know who are great neurofeedback practitioners 
are become evangelical people like most people do in the field. They said, I believe in your feedback. And I go, that's great. Where's the research? And they said, well, we got the research. So, uh, I did some research. It was very hard to get money for it because we did it. Ruth Lanius has been doing the research, but the two of us are cut out of the same cloth. We're sort of fanatical people who try to do things even though it's very hard. And she comes up with great results. So, um, the issue is, you know, to, to create these things, you need an enormous amount of energy and an enormous amount of capacity to raise the money. Yeah. So, in psychedelic research, people have finally succeeded in doing that, thanks to Rick Dobbin, um, and I'm very happy to be part of that. But the other piece is doing feedback. Because we're not going to give little kids psychedelics, and they're not going to do it. But, but we could do video games. Yeah, video games with your own brain. Yeah, yeah the neurofeedback games. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, it's it's fascinating that 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 uh, in in this, the history of that, the story of how it was developed. Apparently, NASA was having trouble with seizures because of rocket fumes, right. and they was it a coincidental. Uh, Finding that these cats that they were using to do, they had trained cats to get a certain brain wa- wavelength going. And, and <laughs> the story that comes to that may not be entirely accurate is that Barry Sturman was a respected neurophysiologist at, at UCLA, I think, uh, was given the contracts from NASA to see how the hell he could uh, prevent these seizures in these cats. That was sent off to outer space. Right. And he tried one drug after another, and he said, "Let's see if we can sort of condition their brain waves." And it turns out that brain waves could do it. And then another stunning thing happened: is that he started off his research with uh, with people with seizures, and he published very, very good data uh, on seizures, neurofeedback uh, procedures. And then somehow it didn't catch on. And I think that again has an issue having to do with politics and the culture we live in, because doctors make more money giving people drugs mm. than than the complicated things like neurofeedback. The lack of money and reimbursement issues really has kept uh, neurofeedback from becoming as widely accepted as it should be. Uh, another interesting thing, for example, is that in 1989 and 1991, two guys, uh, Kulkowski and somebody else, uh, did studies in neurofeedback with chronically alcoholic PTSD patients in the, in the VA. They had spectacular results. Hmm. I looked at those raw results. They are good results. And somehow, why did the VA not embrace neurofeedback? I hear you speaking about the struggle. It's a, it's pushing a boulder uphill. It can feel sometimes. What what would you t- say to somebody new entering this field? What would you want them to hear? People ask me about their career choices. You know, it's a tough decision because the most interesting work gets done in the less prestigious institutions because people can be more creative there. But as a young person, you need to have these things behind your name, yeah. and so. Uh, there's a real conflict. Uh, it's a dance. <laughs> but I'd say overall, uh, go and study with somebody who is really inspires you and who can teach you their particular research uh, methodology in their particular clinical 
uh, acumen, and then for a while you become their acolyte, and then the natural course of events is that at some point you go like, yeah, but they got too stuck in their way of thinking, right. and I need to move it further. Huh? Yeah. So, and I've seen this in basically all of my students and at the trauma center. I thought it actually did a pretty good job in really encouraging people to develop their own uh, their own new branch. Mm-hmm. And so, Margaret Boxing uh, developed this wonderful model, uh, art, uh, uh, affect regulation model, beautiful. Uh, other people in the clinic developed. Smart, which is a sensor integration program. Another group of people developed trauma drama theater program. And so we had a whole bunch of, of offshoots of, of people who were exploring new ways of approaching things. And that, to my mind, was a very nice model, actually. Yeah. You've done a really wonderful thing, Bessel, by bringing together people who are, who you're, you're encouraging to innovate and not just repeat. Uh, the repetition is important. Getting it, getting it right is important. Knowing what you're doing is important, but also innovating. Twenty years from now, people will read my book and they'll laugh their heads off. <laughs> well, I have a feeling it will hold its place in in over time. Uh, your book is "The Body Keeps the Score: Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma." I think you've done an enormous service to our field, and and I'm I'm one of those uh, people who really have a deep appreciation for what you're doing to. Uh, to move these boulders around with us. Thank you so much, Bessel Vandergold. Thank you so much. Okay. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or, or hear more, get access to courses and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.